0: this is Liz Tinkham and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Third Act. Today, I talk with author Bradley Sherman, the superager. Bradley's book, The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny, published last week, and it is a must-read for anyone in or serving the 50 years-plus demographic. In his book, Bradley explores what it can mean for our collective future when there are more people older than 65 than those under the age of 18. And believe me, it's not all doom and gloom. The advent of a majority older population will drive innovation in government, business, housing, mobility, and media that can be positive for all age groups, assuming we act soon. On today's show, Bradley talks about how the lives of his depression era grandparents led him to look more closely at the demographic and societal impacts of aging. In addition, he talks about his seminal work on aging while working at ARP and what he plans to do with his consulting agency, also called the SuperAge, to help organizations harness the opportunities of an increasingly older and generationally diverse population. Bradley. It's wonderful to have you. Happy New Year. We're recording this right after the first of 2022, which is 18 years before the U.S. goes into the super age. Do I have that right? Eight years before we enter the super age. Oh, 2030. 2030. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So we'll get to the super age in just a minute, but I want to get a quick update on your background and how you became a demographic futurist, which is a really interesting title. So you're a graduate of American University. And so what did you think you were going to do when you came out of school? Oh, I thought I was
1: going to be the next president of the United States.
0: Oh my gosh, you're kidding me. You're the <laughs> first person I've ever met who thought they were going to be president. Tell us why.
1: I, I mean, I think I think uh, Washington and, and D.C. and especially the people that go to school in, in, the, in the district and the nation's capital are all alpha personalities. You know, we were all the presidents of our class and earbook editors and captains of sports and we all come to Washington with these grand ambitions to change the world. And I got to Washington and and realized, I think pretty quickly, that I I didn't necessarily want to be on the front lines of changing the world. I, I There was more to be done back of house in Washington, because that's where a lot of the big decisions are made, through the bureaucracy, through the people that work on the Hill, uh, the people that work in the Various agencies and and even in the nonprofits and businesses in the city that's where the that's where change happens in Washington is in those places not always on the front lines of the halls of power.
0: Okay, so again, what so aside from being president, then what did you think you might do? Yeah, you know, I
1: <laughs> I no, I think I I I thought you know I was going to go work in Congress, which is a typical path for most in Washington who are interested in public policy, and I did that. And I didn't love it. Uh, I found that uh, the public policy making in Washington was hard, and, and it was it was uh, unpleasant a lot of times, and it moved dreadfully slow. And, and I wanted to make change right here, right now. I was impatient. I was a young person. I thought that you know the world should turn on a dime for me, and uh, it's not the way the world works uh, in any in any regard. But. As I was trying to figure out what my future was going to be, my grandparents moved into a long-term care community outside of mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. Yeah.
0: Tell us about your grandparents. They had a big influence on you.
1: They did. You know, my grandfather was the child of the, the Great Depression. He was born in, uh, you know, in 1914. And and by, you know, 1928, he was working in the mines. He was as poor as poor could be, Quite literally the person who did not have a pot to piss in. And, um, by 14, he was, uh, an earner for his family, his mother, his father, and his, uh, seven brothers and sisters. And that was pretty commonplace at the time. By the time the war, war- rolled around, he was off to war. Uh, he served as a CB in the, uh, the Navy and, um, came back home, married my grandmother, who was, uh, an elementary school teacher, special needs for the, uh, Pittsburgh school district, and they made a classic middle age or middle class life together. You know, two kids.
0: Did he keep working in the mines, or did he go do something else at that point?
1: Yeah, he came when he came out of the war. He took a job with Westinghouse, so he uh, installed elevators for Westinghouse Electric, which is uh, uh was like I mean a pretty cool job. I think at the time, as the United States was building itself during the mid century. And uh, his claim to fame was was the elevators in the St. Louis Arch. Those were were the ones that he put in. And they're these kind of little pods. Oh that kind of Oh my goodness! The one the that side. kind of goes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs>
0: that and is t- the scariest thing yeah, to go I know. I know. Yeah. And he, t-
1: he tells this story, but you know, they lived a good life. They never had a lot of money. I, I would say they were middle class, but but they were kind of on the the middle middle to lower middle class of of, of middle class. But because they were products of My grandfather in particular was a product of poverty and they were both products of the depression. They saved like crazy. Every penny was saved. Um, Some of it was put into the bank. Some of it was put into mattresses. I mean, it was just, there was money hidden everywhere. So that afforded them a a pretty comfortable retirement uh, at the end of the day. They had the great fortune of a strong public pension system. Uh, my grandmother essentially worked for the state as a teacher so she had a great state pension too and great state health care and they retired in 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 pretty significant comfort and and even in that comfort were able to pass on wealth to their to their children to my to my mom and to her brother which is nothing short of remarkable but when they moved into this retirement community you know i wanted to make sure i was getting up there more often to see them so i traveled between washington and pittsburgh on a on a regular basis, and you know, depending on the time of year, it's either mo- the most beautiful drive you've ever seen or the most gruesome. um yeah, because <laughs> you know, uh, rural Pennsylvania is, is not always the prettiest place. But there's a place where you pull off there off the highway called Breezewood, and it's a it's a it's known as the town of motels, and it was a stopping point on the highway, people going from the east to the west and vice versa. And it's kind of become a depressed place over time uh, because our attitudes toward travel have changed. But as I was pull off there, I'd see a population that was vastly older, vastly whiter, and I'd see people that looked a lot like my grandparents engaged in work, working as, you know, attendants at the gas station or flipping burgers or cleaning toilets at rest stops. And I thought to myself at the time, this is so peculiar. Uh, My grandparents didn't have a lot. What are these folks doing? And it was one of those strings that I just decided to pull on and I became completely enamored with the aging experience and demographic change. And it became my life's work almost completely by happenstance, just because I was I was open and willing to see what was right in front of my eyes, which no one else has chosen to see. And that is how I've carved my niche out in the world. I... Started working for a trade association that represents nursing homes called Leading Age. They represent nonprofit nursing homes and, and long-term care communities. Great organization. But I didn't like long-term care. It was hard and it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't change like it should. It's overly regulated and, and very difficult to deliver care for people in a way that's, that's high quality and low cost. I left there, was recruited to go to AARP. Uh, which is, of course, you know, the membership organization for people over the age of 50 in the US and help them build out their global aging program, um, which was focused on really bringing in the best policies, practices, even products and services from overseas to help support older people in the United States living their best lives in later life. And that was exciting. That was thrilling. Uh, it was nice to work for a big organization. You know, thirty-eight million people, uh, nearly a two-billion-dollar budget. Uh, it was comfortable.
0: And you're pretty young at this time, right? I mean, oh, I,
1: I mean, uh, working for leading edge was my first job out of college. So I was 20, twenty-two, I think, when I started there. And at ARP, I was definitely one of the youngest people uh, within the organization. And I mean, people just looked at me like I was a crazy person. You know what are you doing, this young guy working for old people? I mean, even my own family was just perplexed by it. And I said, no, 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 you have to trust me. Like this is seismic. What's happening right now?
0: That's unbelievable. You caught it that early from Breeze Breezewood Breezeway. The just the town. Wow. Okay.
1: I say in my book, it's kind of difficult to be a futurist if you know where to look for the for the trends for where the future could be taking us. And demography is interesting because. You know, it takes about eighteen to twenty-two years on average to build a human being into a functioning adult.
0: Okay, I have a twenty-two-year-old. He's still in process. <laughs> and He's not <laughs> even. <close. laughs> he's still baking, but keep going.
1: <laughs> but you know what's interesting about this is, we know what a birth a, the birth rate looks like this year, so we'll have a pretty good sense of what the workforce will look like in eighteen to twenty-four years. And if you take a close look at those birth rates, as well as some social and cultural norms, you can make some relatively reasonable projections about where we're going. I just became transfixed by the fact that nobody was seeing what I could see.
0: So how did you come up with the term super age and what does it mean?
1: <laughs> uh, I co opted it. I, 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 will, I, I will unabashedly say that I co opted it. There are three terms that the United Nations uh, uses for populations aging, aged, and super aged. And super aged societies are where one out of five people is over the age of 65. This terminology, super aged, so I took it and made it into the super age. In large part because super-aged was really seen as a pejorative. It was seen as a negative. This was when you know, we would have a great imbalance in our labor force participation rates, when we would no longer be able to afford our social welfare programs that we held sacrosanct. This is where you know, we start to come off the rails, quite frankly, as a society, because we could no longer afford the population that we had. I don't buy into that. I think that the super age can actually be super. It can be a spectacular period for humanity if we tack our sails in the right way. We can't assume that systems and structures and institutions remain static forever. Change is the only thing that's constant. So we need to adapt our social security system in this country. We need to adapt Medicare to meet the modern era. We have to adjust our attitudes towards older populations, away from ones that are historically negative, or at least historically negative in my lifetime, to ones that are more positive. Um, We need to turn older people away from being net consumers to being net contributors to society. And if we're able to do that, if we're really serious about making this change, which I believe we, we should be. We could enter into a new era of prosperity for our, for our society that will you know will rival that of like the 1950s, where people are living in in good uh, you know economic conditions and and there's a greater sense of equality.
0: Let's talk about the super age and its implications. You're about to publish a book called "The Super Age: Decoding Our Demographic Destiny," and some of the statistics you have in the book are just fascinating and astounding. One of them that really struck me was that the fastest growing age group in the U.S. is people over 85, and in 1900 there were 100,000 people over 85. Now there's six million, and that is growing. Is this mostly due to advances in healthcare?
1: Um, it's mostly due to solving for infant and child mortality. There's a number of laws at play here. So you know, if we're talking about my grandfather 1914. On average. He had a one out of three chance of making it to the age of three and about a 50% chance of making it to adulthood. We almost completely erased infant and youth mortality um, over the course of the past, you know, 100 years. That's nothing short of remarkable, but, but law of averages comes into play. Okay, so if you're able to survive into adulthood, you have a pretty good chance of making it to old age. So take the boomers, for example. I think 76 million boomers were born. 70 million are still alive today. Like the survival rates are, are nothing short of extraordinary. And when you take into, a, into account that, that almost all of our efforts went to improving the lives of infants and children, from uh, water sanitation to food safety to vaccines to getting people out of the factories and off the fields and into the classroom, like all of those things contributed to kids making it into adulthood. We've done that. We've basically solved for that at this point. So there's this whole new group of investors and scientists that are saying, well, now we're going to solve for getting old.
0: Mm, well, that's a good thing.
1: It is a good thing. Uh, and, it's, and it's one of those things that's, that's to me, very revolutionary in a, from a conversation point because these men and women aren't necessarily looking to extend our lives in perpetuity. Their initial goal is to compress morbidity. And that means they wanna shorten the number of years that we're sick. So while we could extend life, we're actually gonna stop the number of years increasing of, of, of living in sickness or in, in poor health.
0: I think one of the other things I read in your book is that I'm probably directionally accurate here on the stats is that in the 1950s in the United States, Over half of men over 65 worked, and we'll just use men because they were the primary working class, but today less than 20% do, although that number is growing. So clearly the combination of a longer life and a shorter work life means people running out of money, potentially. So talk a little bit about some of the implications economically that you talk about in your book.
1: Well, the first is uh, just to to adjust that stat a little bit. It's just shy of 50% in 1950. What we had with the baby boom was this glut of labor, this incredible amount of supply entered into the marketplace, which was further uh, fed by Gen X and the millennials in terms of sheer sheer numbers. It was also fed by globalization. So the value of a worker actually decreased over the past 50 years. So we pushed older workers out because they were expensive in many regards. We used social welfare programs like Social Security and Medicare as kind of these shields to you know protect us and say we're going to be ages, but we're going to get rid of these people because they have this safety net to go to. We push them into retirement, frankly prematurely. So when I entered the workforce in the early aughts, the late 90's and the early aughts, I um, was confronted by a reality that there were very few older people there to mentor me. I missed out on that opportunity to have a senior member of staff, take me under their wing. You know, the oldest person that I was working with was in their 50s. And I thought, this is just, this is just not, this is not getting me what I need to get right now. I need somebody 65, 70 plus telling me what to do, giving me that mentorship, something that my parents got when they entered the workforce in the 1960s and the 1970s. So what's changing is, you know, COVID's changed a lot of things. Um, it's really adjusted the, the supply of labor in the marketplace. Uh, quite dramatically, so our our labor force conditions, uh, not to be too highly technical, look a lot more like the nineteen fifties post war than you know just five years ago when there was almost too much labor to deal with.
0: And now there's not enough. There's plenty of labor,
1: so labor shortage. I don't like when people use the term labor shortage. I, I it's more of a labor realignment or a labor contraction because older people left the workforce; they were made redundant. They left because they were told that they were going to get sick by COVID and die. Don't forget, you're over 65, you're going to get sick and die of COVID. That's what everyone told you at the beginning of the pandemic. And that's stuck. And that continues to stick today. But also, you know, if you're high net worth and or even if you're not and you were well invested in the marketplace, you left the workforce because the market was doing really well. And you can call it the Obama economy, you can call it the Trump economy, you can call it the COVID economy. It doesn't matter. The stock market has been doing a bang-up job at earning people wealth, and unlike the previous generation, those folks that were here you know, 15, uh, 12, 12, 14 years ago during the last recession, people, people learned from that. They said, we're playing by Vegas rules. We're getting out. We're getting out while we can. We're riding high on this. Let's get out, and they've realigned their savings to be one that's for retirement, truly retirement, not for working. So, yes, there is a bit of an artificial uh, supply problem in the workforce right now, but it is opening up some great opportunity for workforce innovation. And it certainly isn't improving the condition of the certainly the American worker, but I think the global workplace as well, too.
0: Post-COVID, which we hope will be this year, do you see that group of people age 65 needing to come back into the workforce? Well, let's just talk about it here in the United States.
1: Two needs that, that need to be fulfilled here. There's the need for cash, uh, cash money, earnings, and then there's the need for social engagement. There are two sides to the coin here. And yes, I do see workers coming back in a uh, pretty large form relatively soon. We also, the workplaces are just going to demand they come back too. Now, will these individuals come back to the same salaries they were making before? That's unlikely. Trends suggest that they will not do that. Trends also suggest that they'll have a bit of a hard hard time getting back into the workforce. It roughly takes twice as long as a younger worker today. But that doesn't mean that they can't get back in, they will get back in at some point uh, if they're relatively dogged about it. And I do think people do give up at some point of getting back in.
0: You have a great chapter in your book called Make Age Work, which I love the title of, which talks about people working longer and how employers can p- keep people longer. And you give some really good examples that I wanted to talk through. So tell us about Mercedes-Benz and the iAlter, the Hey Buddy program that they've got going.
1: Yeah, I mean, the chairman Automakers has done a really phenomenal job of, of embracing demographic change. But this is typically because there is a market need. Uh, what folks need to remember early on is that businesses aren't aren't there to be a friend they're there to make money and demographic change is now a clear and present threat to some industries and in some countries that are uh, aging at a pretty rapid rate and germany is one of those countries so i alter is a program in which you know mercedes set up essentially learnings between young and older members of their workforce to breed empathy into into the products they were designing not only the design, but the way they communicated the designs to their their clients at the end of the day. BMW altered their their factory; they're one of the first companies to do so to extend working lives, not just for older workers, but also for younger workers too. And Porsche, you know, the the, the very fancy uh, luxury car maker, um, has built their entire plant in Leipzig around ergonomics that extend the working lives for all. So. It's interesting when companies start to benchmark Um, BMW was the first Mercedes followed and then Porsche. But uh, when they start to benchmark, some really cool things can happen.
0: And Have they been able to extend the average age of their worker, keep people in the workforce longer?
1: They have consistently across the board and the the interventions are, are a varying cost. Uh, Let's be clear about that. BMW started with very uh, low cost innovations. Things that were so simple, you're like, why didn't we think about this before? You know, like magnifying glasses at each station, a stretching station for people. Because, you know, it's it's hard work to do that repetitive motion all day. They just wanted a stretching station. But what was revolutionary about what BMW did, Porsche to some degree, Mercedes as well, is they asked their workers what would make their working lives better.
0: It's pretty simple. Is that not the most simple (laughs) but most
1: revolutionary (laughs) thing you can imagine? Yeah. Hey, what do you guys want? Oh well, we'd really like some better eyewear and we'd really like some better shoes, and you know, wouldn't it be nice to have a chair to sit in?
0: Okay, that's pretty cheap. yeah it's cheap and it, and, it, and it improved
1: it improved overall worker satisfaction with their jobs, it improved their physical health, and at the end of the day, it had a direct impact on quality of the product. with a company like Porsche, you know we can actually see you know see the influence of having older workers. In the factory now, because inclusion is showing up in their design, you know, their designs are safer, they're more, they're more cognizant of changes to vision and the ability to, to move your dexterity within a vehicle. I always tell people, you know, one of the greatest innovations for older people in cars is the one that we all take for granted today. And that's the push button start.
0: Really? Just to make it easier than to have to put the key in?
1: Yeah, it just was easier because it's hard to remember the, what the, getting the key into the ignition was like.
0: That's true. Yeah, especially at night or it's cold or something like that, right?
1: Exactly. So, so, you know, you're trying to get this tiny little thing into this tiny little hole in a tiny little space that's dark. It was hard for a person with full abilities. Now imagine if you had some decline in your vision or some decline in your dexterity It was damn near impossible. And consistently, what we know about the aging process is one of the first things to go is our mobility. So the fact that these companies have really taken that on head on to say, we need to increase the, extend the lives of not only our workers, but extend the lives of the users of our vehicles is pretty cool. It it makes market sense. It's market driven at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So we have a, a big female audience, so I know that they'd appreciate what's happening at Westpac in Australia. So talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean Westpac did the same thing. They they had a challenge with women uh, tellers in their banks, uh, women who were in their fifties and sixties, of leaving. And you know, like most businesses, I think that you know the HR folks and the executive teams all think that they're you know the smartest people in the room. And they tried to figure out what the problem was without actually asking the question. And, you know, finally somebody said, you know, we should put a survey out to them. We should put a survey out to these women, see what's going on.
0: (laughs) How revolutionary.
1: Oh my God, how revolutionary. Ask the worker what they need. And what came back consistently across the board was, you know, we're first time grandmothers and we'd love to spend time with our grandkids. And you offer parental leave, but you offer no leave for us to help take care of our of our sons and our daughters' children. We'd love for that to happen. And Westpac said, that's it, that's all you need. And they put in place the first in class, first in the world, grandparents leave.
0: That's such a cool idea. It's just so thoughtful.
1: You know, I mean, why is it so difficult to be thoughtful? Why is it so difficult to ask your workers what will help them do their jobs better? This new era is going to require that employers do that. They're not going to have a choice anymore. Um, Thank God we have companies like Westpac and BMW and and Mercedes-Benz and Porsche that can offer some guidance in this new period of our civilization, because otherwise we'd be fumbling around in the dark, trying to figure out how to make uh, the working lives of older people, all people, quite frankly, in the workplace better. If you design for older workers or think about older workers, um, you're really designing for everybody at the end of the day.
0: So let's switch topics. I want to talk a little bit about ageism and you write quite a bit about the history of ageism bias and and how much the media and our obsession with youth culture and advertising have played a role. You mentioned Lynn Slater, um, an influencer, an older woman who's an influencer And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about her and then what role do you think media can play in combating ageism? And do you think that they'll do it?
1: (laughs) That's the trick question, isn't it? Will they do it?
0: It sure is.
1: You know, Lynn Slater is one of a number of different influencers that's, that's come of age on Instagram, come of age in later life. And what's so special about this group of men and women is that they're really just being themselves. They're recording themselves as they like to live. And it's fashionable. It's cool. It's it's effortless. They're beautiful in in every regard. And they're putting it out there for the world to see. And they garnered a massive audience doing it. I started following her after reading your book. Well, I mean, Lynn is just one of many. I mean, uh, there's this couple in Japan called bon Pon. Bon and Pon And they're, they're. they're, I mean, I hate to say because it sounds kind of like infantilization, but they're just adorable. On like in every regard, they wear the same outfits. This couple, their entire life, they wore the same outfits. But then you have, you know, the 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 grand influencers of sorts. You know, people like uh, Iris Apfel. You know, who at hundred years old is doing collabs with major corporations. They are successful in large part because young women have embraced them. For most of human history. And I think this is important for, for, for your audience in particular to hear is that for most of human history, people like me, men have had, you know, we've had role models, you know, we've had heads of state, heads of industry. We know what it can look like to be an older man. And if you have wealth to some degree, um, you have influence. Um, if you have kind of, if you've maintained your relevance in society, you've kept up with trends, you can be seen as cool and And loved and embraced and put up on a pedestal. but for women, most of women's role in history has been relegated to fertility. Are you able to have kids? And once you weren't, you were disposed of. So what these women are doing is they're showing a path for younger women that never that these younger women were never able to see. What these women who are influencers now, they're paving the path for younger women. In fact, uh, just. Oof, Two or three weeks ago, Vogue, one of the most ageist magazines on the planet, ran a story about these social media influencers. They called it Nanocore. I'm sure you've heard the term Normcore before. It's Nanocore. And I thought to myself, well, that's a bit pejorative. That's a bit ridiculous to say. But the images are beautiful. And there's this consistent thread that both the influencers and the folks that photograph them, people like Ari e. Seth Cohen – who uh, runs a style blog strictly about older women in particular, he talks about, they talk about the fact that younger people can see themselves in their future in older folks that have maintained style, maintained dignity and grace, and are showing themselves to be cool and human beings. We want to achieve that at the end of the day. We want to be part of the pack, if not lead it. No, None of us want to fall behind.
0: Do you think it will continue to expand? Because right now you've talked about, you know, some, a few people, right?
1: Yeah, there's a number of people that I mentioned there. I do think it's going to continue. I do think that it will eventually bleed into, and this is the great thing about social media is that social media has broken the back of traditional media um, in many regards. I mean, we wouldn't have been doing this 10 years ago. Not not in a way that, that would have had any real effect on, you know, sales of my book or, or you know, uh, moving the needle, um, I would have had to go through a very traditional channel of, of broadcast. Social media has really disrupted that. And, and it's, it's a good thing because now we can actually see what we want to see. We can find those who want to follow. And businesses are getting behind these folks. They're, they're doing collaboration deals and they're significant. And they're far-ranging. You know, they're not, you know... <laughs> products that we always cast at old people, walkers or diapers or canes, you know, they're products like vodkas and ice creams and high fashion. That's revolutionary. So what's happening is businesses are adapting very quickly to this and saying, okay, there's value in these influencers. We should leverage that for us, for our brand. We can increase market share by doing it. Older people can actually be used to sell to younger people or to all generations. Well, that's an asset. One of the big challenges that still hasn't been fixed yet, and it just mm, drives me absolutely insane, is Madison Avenue. Madison Avenue, man, that is the most ageist, sexist place on the planet.
0: <laughs> How I mean, really it feel?
1: really is. Well, it just, it won't change. Um, and I wonder at what, which point, at which point it will break. Because it it is being disrupted in real time. But for some reason, time and time again, even when the big companies like BMW do a great job at recruiting and retaining older workers, they do an amazing job at, at, at bringing empathy from learning from older people into their products and design beautiful vehicles. They still manage to ha- hire a firm on Madison Avenue that, that somehow decides that they're going to market it as a as a as a product to young people. They're going to market it as a product that is aggressively anti older people. BMW, I think in 2000, in twenty twenty, you know, ran a series of ads that in 20, early twenty twenty one that were basically a riff off OK Boomer. And this is a this is something that was designed here in the states. This wasn't something that BMW did globally. But this is an ad campaign most likely designed by by a Madison Avenue firm. So. We're still stuck in the past in some of these places. There's still opportunity for a lot of change. It is happening, though.
0: Yeah, and you write about in your book, the buying power of that group, and I've talked about it on a prior podcasts, particularly for women who make most of the purchase decisions is enormous. It's enormous because so much of the wealth is concentrated in the hands of these people.
1: It's an important point. There's a lot of wealth in the boomer group in particular. I think we have to remember, you know, just like there's diversity in our stages in later life, there's also diversity in our, in our wealth. So, you know, for every, you know, Warren Buffett <laughs> or, you know, Bill Gates, there's a lot of people that live in poverty too. So any type of blanket statement is, is, is difficult. But that being said, there is sizable, there's a sizable number of people that do have an incredible amount of wealth and they should start speaking with that. I think you're seeing that show up in, in certainly the way television, um, the streaming services in particular are portraying uh, people of diverse ages, there's more relevant programming that's coming online. I think the products are starting to adapt too. but this is not something that we're going to you know, snap our fingers and it's going to change overnight. It's going to be a process and boomers are the tip of the spear.
0: One of the other fun things you talked about, and I love this, was the statistics around entrepreneurs in the 55 to 64 group and how much more successful they are than younger people. And I don't think that that's something that most people know. And I think it's very encouraging, particularly to our audience. And so maybe talk a little bit about what you found there. Well, I think,
1: first of all, we have to reset what our idea of entrepreneurism is. You know, we have this idea, I think, that's ingrained that we all need to be the next Jeff Bezos or, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, to be an entrepreneur. And that's just not true. You know, success in being an entrepreneur could be a mom and pop. Um, It could be a cottage industry. Um, successes that you're earning um, and you're not taking a loss and whereas you know this older group may not have the same you know valuations to their companies at the end of the day they are building profitable ones and successful ones and there's there's so much to take from that that's positive and exciting because what fuels this economy at the end of the day are small and medium-sized enterprises. it's not the amazons of the world they're not they're not keeping, they're not keeping America afloat. It's uh small and medium and sized enterprises. And in many regards, older people are leading the way where there is, where there are some holes, there continue to be some holes is when you look at growth companies in older populations, it's harder for older people to get money um, to fund their enterprises. It's a bit more difficult.
0: Is that ageism
1: or is it just?
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. <laughs> for the most part. All right. I mean, it's, It's you can't call it anything else if if the numbers are suggesting that there's higher success rates and the money is not flowing to these folks in the same way. You just can't do it. You know there's there's a there's a significant bias, especially even in the the tech community, that, that favors youth above all else. Even when youth are building products and services to serve older populations, they're more likely to get the money than than an older entrepreneur, even though their risk is greater.
0: Some venture capitalists are now focused on, say, supporting women or supporting BIPOC communities. Are there any, do you see any trends there where there are different places supporting older entrepreneurs? Well,
1: not for older entrepreneurs, uh, for products and services that support older people, but not for older entrepreneurs. I haven't seen anything substantial at this point. Anything that really jumps out is exciting to me, but there there is opportunity there it's a good investment, you know, <laughs> the data, the data proves it, you know, older, older people, older entrepreneurs are, are a good investment for us. I think that, you know, if there's one bit of caution for older entrepreneurs in particular is making sure that you're managing your risk as, as much as you can, you know, there, there are government programs that can help uh, set up a uh, business, you know, be careful about how much you take from retirement savings in particular, your 401k, if you have one, you know, you really have to to manage your risk in a different way than a younger person does. And it shows up in, in the risk assessment and the success rate at the end of the day. But this is just a gentle reminder of that because you don't necessarily have the same number of years to make up a loss.
0: I want to finish the podcast here with a quote from the book. And Let me just read it and then you can comment on it. Throughout all of this work, I've emphasized one simple truth, Everyone wants to be part of something. All people want to belong and be seen as normal, if not extraordinary. They want to have purpose and they want to contribute to something, anything that is bigger than they are. This goes for all people, regardless of age, all around the world and in all economic groups. In fact, it may be more important to people the longer they are alive. So I love that quote because it really resonated with the essence of my podcast, which is, you know, what do you do after you leave your second act, your big job? So what innovative ideas do you see happening globally and and helping people to find purpose if they're going to live a much longer life after they've stopped with sort of their big job?
1: It's a hard question because so so much about finding who you are is on you and carving out your niche in the world. And it requires a lot of work to remain relevant and cool and centered in the zeitgeist or or a driver of, of, of influence. It's not an easy thing to do. But remember this, it wasn't easy when you were young, it's not going to get any easier when you get older. Being part of society requires us to be constantly on. And whether we look at ourselves as tribal or pack animals, at the end of the day, we either want to be ahead or somewhere in the pack. You know, we either want to be ahead of the pride or, you know, somewhere in the middle of it. You know, when we fall behind, uh, when we slip away, when we don't keep up on technologies, uh, when we don't keep up on popular culture, we start to become others. And that's a dangerous place for us to be. So when I talk about individual actions, which I think is where we really need to center on more than anything else, keeping up on technology is one of the best things you can do. The second the second thing you really have to do on a consistent basis is is network around work. You know, whether you stay in or leave the workforce, keep up with your colleagues inside and outside of the office because you might want to return at some point. Perhaps take on some part-time work or some consulting projects. If you're in an office job or a knowledge job, don't walk away completely. Please, please, please don't walk away completely. Because when you close that door, it becomes a lot harder, a lot harder to open up. And I think the last thing is that Above all else, build a friend group that is multi generational. Build a network group that is multi generational. Because one of the sad stories that I hear a lot from uh, older friends is is the loss of their friend group, the erosion of their friend group. And we know that it is harder to make close friends the longer we're on the on this planet. So rather than Rather than worry about your friend group eroding because they're of similar age or similar stage, build a friend group that that's extensive in age. You know, I, I I proudly say that you know my my immediate friend group you know ranges from early twenties to early eighties. Like that's intentional. I'm 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 doing that for my health. <laughs> I'm doing that because I I gain energy from the experience of of my elders and energy from the scrappiness and the spontaneity of younger people, but I'm also doing it as a, as a way to buffer, uh, change and building these networks of people, of friends, of professional colleagues that are differing ages builds up a more resilient future for me. More people should be doing this.
0: We didn't talk a lot about you because your book is just so <laughs> fascinating, but I want to finish Thank with, you. so I almost titled this podcast. I'm not done yet. So what aren't you done with yet, Bradley.
1: I think i've really just begun you know this is this is a brand new era for for humankind make no mistake uh we've never had a period like this before where our populations have changed this much in such a short period of time we're remaking the world right now and uh, i think very quickly moving from the back halls of of change to the to the front lines um has happened overnight so building our business um the super age launching a subsidiary that's focusing exclusively on inclusive design, because I believe the future is inclusive. This is where we're going. I really feel like I've just begun. And I think also, you know, being somebody who's a a late Gen Xer, (laughs) my generation and subsequent generations, you know, we're all kind of on board with the fact that we're going to be working for most of our lives now. (laughs) We're we're reverting to the way the world was prior to the advent of pensions, prior to the post-war economy. We will work until we can't. And we will become old um, based on a historic definition when we can no longer contribute. But believing that old means you know, starts at 65 is silly. Uh, folks need to get that out of their head right now because that's not what the world looks like in the near future.
0: Thank you so much for coming on this show today. And the book is fascinating. I encourage everyone to go buy it. We'll put it in the show notes. So where and when can we find the book? When does it get published? Where will we be able to find it?
1: Uh, thanks for that. It, you can find it uh, on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, virtually any national or international reseller, retailer, rather, and also in local bookstores across the country. Amazon's, of course, the easiest place to get it, but Amazon is Amazon, so.
0: And it's published which day?
1: January 18th.
0: Where else can we find you online?
1: Uh, you can find me at thesuperage.com. Uh, I maintain my most active social presen- presence at Bradley Sherman, that's S-C-H-U-R-M-A-N, You can find most of my insights. Uh, I keep regular updates on LinkedIn, but we keep all social channels active. It's just LinkedIn is a a nice platform.
0: We will publish all that in the show notes. And thank you so much again. Happy New Year.
1: Thanks, Liz. Happy New Year to you.
0: Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.